Hi, welcome to Cinemad. Today I'm talking with longtime artist and filmmaker Jennifer Reeder. She's originally from Ohio, but she's lived and worked in Chicago for decades now. Although the types of work Reader has made have changed over the years, from installations and video art and performance art to making tons of fiction films, her approach has always been really distinctive with honest portrayals of female characters within a really enhanced style, sort of reworking melodrama or even an afternoon school special vibe into something more meaningful. Two recent short films by Reader both follow groups of teenage girls and their daily relationships, and both also star an adult lead character played by the great Jennifer Eslin. In the short A Million Miles Away, Eslin plays a substitute teacher interacting with the high school girls' choir as they perform an a cappella version of You've Got Another Thing Coming by Judas Priest. A Million Miles Away has played tons of film festivals and won awards at Ann Arbor, Chicago Underground, and uh, Oberhausen. And it just played at Sundance, where we are talking in this podcast. Reader has a new short film called Blood Below the Skin, which just premiered at the Berlin Film Festival. And she also just received a creative capital grant for a feature project called As With Knives and Skin. Another thing Reader has is amazing film titles. Here we go. So many yeah, filmmakers, yeah. we have an email relationship, and yeah. then after a while I was like, oh, I've never actually met you. Right. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. You think you, we think we've met, but we didn't. Right. And then we sort of get, we were talking a little bit last night, just like once you go to a film festival and then you realize, oh, I'm not the only weirdo in somewhere in some little town. That's right. There's a lot. Yeah. Did you grow up looking at this type of film, uh, underground kind of film, or did you sort of have like wholesome American upbringing? Mm, well, I'm the youngest of five. My parents are a lot... Um, older and I actually was sort of raised on um, sort of weird television shows uh, Mary Hartman <laughs> or like Carol Burnett I mean Carol Burnett was a mainstream show but and then um, you mean so sort of like variety kind of yeah. you know and uh, but maybe not film, maybe not TV that was appropriate for like a five-year-old you know right. but that's what my parents were watching and they were they because I was you know the fifth they were like, it's, you know, it doesn't matter. Just put anything on, you right. know, at this point. And then, you know, and, my and mom, was this? this was in Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And my mom was a real, you know, like a film noir fan. And so when, for, like when Rebecca was on, you know, she would sort of make everybody stop what they were doing and, you know, watch it. And that's not by any means an indie film, but, you know, was also not, uh, like again, like what a film that a seven-year-old would be like. That's a that was a really good film, Mom. Thanks for you know letting me watch that. But growing up in Columbus, Ohio, which is a college town, you know we had um, not just one, maybe two, maybe even three sort of art house movie theaters, and um, you know that that once I could, once anyone in our group could drive, or you could you know convince your mom to sort of drop you off to go see something, then that's what you did. And I we hung out on campus a lot you know, in the, like, record stores, and somehow you would just through the magazines, you know, or conversations in those record stores sort of have an idea of, of the weird weird world outside of, you know, central Ohio. And, you know, I just sought it out as much as I could. Yeah, it's interesting. College towns are, like, 
if you're lucky, you can live in a college town. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny to think about that now because going to college, like the last thing I wanted to do was hang out on campus. Right. But as I do remember being a teenager and like just listening to college radio. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you call in, you're like, oh, my God, he's talking to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now Columbus is not like that at all. Like, it's become, they've completely bulldozed all of these great, weird, like, punk, all-ages clubs and whatnot. And it's like Panera. Oh, man. Haircuttery, mm. et cetera, you know? Yeah. So kids growing up there have a much, now have a much more sort of limited, well, I mean, I guess they have the, the internet. But, I mean, the, they have a, a, it's much more normal than it was when I was growing up there. You know, there was still like a really on campus. There was just still like there was a, a significant kind of um, like underground um, community, you know, mm-hmm. that I that I tried to attach myself to uh, as sort of as soon as possible. And like then, and yeah, stuff. yeah, for sure, for sure. And then was there local filmmakers? Was there any sort of scene like that since it was a college town? No, not film, not film uh, making necessarily, even though, you know, Ohio State, which is where I went to, uh, for undergrad. Mm-hmm. had a film program which is what I graduated from but it wasn't I mean there's not even still like a film scene necessarily there you know um or much of a an art scene that I can mm. um detect and not even much of a music scene the way that it that it used to be mm. you know which is also why when I uh you know graduated from undergrad or why I was still sort of a or I was getting ready to graduate is when I started applying for grad schools Primarily because I knew that that would be a way that I could convince my mom that I needed to leave Columbus. You know, like I, she, if I just said like I'm going to go to LA or go to Chicago or, you know, go to Boston or whatever, you know, I think she would say, you know, forget it. You know, <laughs> were you the only girl? Uh uh-uh. uh no. But my sister stayed sort of close. You know, she's older than she would. She stayed sort of close and had, you know, had uh, she had a family at that time, and I, that was like not in my. Not not for me at that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was like a trail of scorched earth behind me, you know, that led directly to Chicago, which is where I've been ever since. But, you mm-hmm. know, like, but I, but there was a, a kind of a scene in Chicago at that time, at least, you know, I had um, uh, heard of the Video Data Bank, mm-hmm. and I knew that that was housed within the School of the Art Institute. And so there was this way that I was like, that is where I'm going to go to grad school, mm-hmm. you know? And... Um, and you heard so, about that when you were like going, like, I'm assuming Ohio State uh-huh, was still yeah, like yeah. a little more mainstream film mm-hmm. school. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. But that, but I was working, I was delivering the mail at the Wexner Center at mm-hmm. that point as an undergrad. And, and Bill Horgan, who's still one of the, their curators, you know, would just curate these fantastic film series. And so I spent a ton of time as an undergrad, just parked in the theater at the Wexner Center. And since I worked in the mailroom, I would see all of these uh, other boxes of, of tapes go, returning to the video data bank, you know. So it was really, I was like, there. it's like the pot, the pot of gold somehow. And um, so when I got to Chicago, one of the first people that I met was Sadie Benning. And, um, and it was funny, like later I, later I met her dad and like her dad still is just Sadie's dad to me, you know, he's, (laughs) he's like, it's not the reverse. And, um, and so, you know, and, and there was this really great sort of girl video maker scene in the mid nineties in Chicago that I just happened to kind of stumble into or be a part of. And, um, was it, uh, who were like sort of the teachers? What was the generation before you? Um, I feel like Sadie, I don't know how old Sadie is. Sadie's probably in her early 40s. Oh, yeah, so you know, at this generation. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so who had been there before? I mean, it was like a lot of maybe um, more hand processing filmmakers or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, like 
Um, right, because video is probably just still starting out. Yeah, exactly. And one of the reasons I really wanted to go to, to the School of the Art Institute was because they had a video program, like just a video program. And oh. I was totally into just video shooting on tape, you know. And, uh, I mean, I had taken film classes, but I really loved um, shooting on video. It was like, you know, going back to our conversation about George Kuchar, you know, like I was totally taken by all of those, you know, when he first got his hands on a video camera. And that seemed, um, I mean, I didn't sort of think like, well, you, you know, I could do that if I just had a video camera. There was something really significant about being able to cart around my own equipment and, um to uh, manipulate video in a different way than than film and that there was a real like clunky amateur quality to the texture of video that I really loved you know that felt it felt really from that kind of DIY culture that um that I liked you know in music or zine making or you know that was happening the other sort of like you know, people doing in the sort of DIY. And so I knew that the, anyway, so that, that SAIC had this just a video program. Mm-hmm. Now they don't. Now it's like, you know, film, video, new media, just like every other, every other place. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that seemed really significant. And so I, you know, landed in Chicago, got a job, you know, at the, at the video data bank and stayed there for, you know, a while and did sort of the same thing there that I did at the Wexner Center. I would just, you know, after I was done working, I would go into the screening room with the video data bank and just, I watched everything you know and so I feel like now my even the 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 stuff that I'm making right this minute I feel like is is so much more influenced for instance by kind of like early 70s kind of performance-based video Mm. art you know Martha Mm. Rossler and um Linda Benglis or even those goofy kind of William Wegman early pieces with the dogs or these kind of performative Bruce Nauman pieces um Video Conchi, you know, like all of that early video art that was made with, you know, on those black and white porta pack tapes are so radical. I mean, still even today, they're so um, like out, out without rules on some level, you know, they're really fresh in that regard. And I love showing that stuff to my students because they it's, it just sort of blows their mind. They don't first of all, they, they can't kind of place the the source you know they're like what is this weird kind of grainy black and white uh, video still, footage as time goes on all that stuff just gets more and more beautiful yeah it's too. gorgeous and the and sort of the performative quality and what those people were all kind of trying to work through and that especially the women it was the same like they picked up a video camera for the same reason i did you know i mean when i was in a kind of proper you know film school curriculum i was like the you know i was in charge of the slate you know, because I was like, I know how to run the camera. And they were like, just run the slate, Jennifer. You know what I mean? It was like lots of dudes and, right. you know, and so that's one of the reasons that, you know, I was so drawn to, you know, to just using a video camera because I could use local light, you know, I could just plug a microphone into it. I could hit record and, and sort of play in front of it, perform in front of it and sort of like reinvent my universe on some level. And, um, so then when I started watching all this early, sort of performance-based, you know, kind of feminist video art, uh, I, there was like a, a real sort of like connect. I felt really connected to that. Like I felt like a real sort of bodily kind of trajectory, you know, mm-hmm. because I feel like those women did the, were doing the exact same thing. You know, they were sort of pushed to the peripheral, to the, to the edges, you know, of the art world, but they realized like that they could using, 
um, video that was sort of close to film, close to photography, um, but had, but was a real rejection of like painting and sculpture and other ob- like object based art forms. Um, and they could do it all themselves. You know, they could bring a camera into their bedroom, into their kitchen and, you know, make something that felt really, uh, radical and significant. So yeah, the, the low light is an important facet. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. Sort of, then you just get into, you know, not in every case, it's a lot of times there's a studio too, but sure. also it's like, this is the real world mm-hmm. I can now mm-hmm. sort of capture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then did you, what was your job there? Or just, um, hey, just doing whatever. Yeah. I mean, I would kind of, at the, at the data bank, you know, I would just, you know, process orders, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, for like the you know for the faculty and also for you know people from around the world sort of uh order you know like ordering tapes for classrooms or festivals but it's really it was also gave me it, it instantly connected me to um you know the world outside of the US you know in terms of mm. what was happening in um you know sort of short form film video all over the place you know it's like the first time i had any kind of um connection to or or knowledge of like you know, the short film festival in Oberhausen, for instance, you know, because we were sending, you know, we were sending work there or Hamburg or, you know, Glasgow or something. Um, And it also taught me how to distribute my own Mm. work, you know? So, which was, you know, I just learned a lot about how you negotiate broadcasts and how you negotiate, you know, rentals and what's, what you can charge for an individual or an institution. And, you know, and I feel like I still, I mean, in the States I distribute, you know, all of my own work. And so I get to, you know, I mean, I have to pay for shipping, but I get to recoup all of those rental costs or whatever, you know? So that was a huge, the working at the data bank for me was a, but it was a much bigger education than just sort of like meeting with the faculty at SCIC, mm-hmm. you know? And I, and I, then I worked there for like two years after I graduated. And cause you go to the art Institute while you work there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I was like a, I was like a graduate assistant or like a GA while I was in grad school there mm, for the, right. for, yeah, for the data bank. And then, did you know like Sadie's work before you got there? I didn't. The Pixel, no, uh, no, not or at Because this, this is post Pixel Vision work, probably. Yeah, exactly. Or, it was like yeah. right, kind of at the right at the end of all of that stuff. And yeah. um, so, no, I had no idea who she was. And Mindy Faber, who was mm. who's a video maker, who mm. was the sort of my ma- my boss at the Video Data Bank, said, uh, you know, Sadie Benning is looking for a roommate. You know, do you need a roommate? And I was kind of like, who? Sadie Benning's looking for a roommate who, who so what or something like that you know and because I didn't know who she was because really as an undergrad my my sort of video instructor mentor sort of fed me a, a strict diet of George Kuchar, Kuchar in Maya Darren you know mm-hmm. he was like right. which I think you know you, there's sort of you can see kind of that in my work still mm-hmm. and so I don't think that he knew or was interested in Sadie's work, so he didn't show it to us, you know? And it was um, still relatively fresh. It was that. really fresh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, so, no, I got to know her and her work while I was there. And then, you know, we, uh, she shot um, Flat is Beautiful shortly after that. And I have, I play a couple of different people in that in mm-hmm. that um, film. And she she's in the first White Trash Girl Um and I guess in something else that she did, I helped her make a video for the band Come, this like Boston-based you know music. And so, mm-hmm. like immediately, um, and I had you know I was not starstruck. I just thought like you know she seems cool. You know <laughs> she's making videos. I'm making videos. And um, you know what's really interesting about her, her those those early Pixel Vision pieces. You know, being a uh, so being an instructor, I just no- noticed these these. Uh, um, 
I don't know, like phases that different sort of like film and video projects go to go to. So like maybe 10 years ago, um, when I would show Sadie's work to my classes, they were not interested. Mm. They were, but they were interested in Miranda July. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's totally flipped, you mm. know. So, and you think that is? I mean, it can't be subject based. It's I style think, based. I think it's a little bit style based. Mm. You know, I think because you know, like kids, kids, <laughs> kids are are interested again in um, you know glitch and mm-hmm. VHS hacking and all this kind of stuff, right? So I think that the texture of those um, of those Pixel Vision pieces of Sadie's Pixel Vision pieces are really appealing. But I also think that that the kind of um, sort of singular protagonist, you know, and her use of music and that they feel really raw and open. They're not ironic or snarky. You know, they're just really sincere. And, um, you know, I think that subject of of also kind of coming out as a teenager, you know, in your bedroom and sort of and the kind of her, you know, um, gender nonconforming self in you know, like the late eighties, early nineties, you know, being able to think about that in, you know, right now where there's a lot of, a lot of, um, young people feel much more kind of comfortable either coming out or, or coming out as like gender queer. And I think that that her, her work really appeals to, you know, it's like that feels really fresh. Whereas, you know, like students are not as into nest of tens as they were Hmm. 12 years ago. Right. You know, they're kind of like, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. So I don't yeah. know, you know, it's just like, it's just interesting to, to feel that, to have those things, you know, kind of like flip, but I love how early stuff that was influenced, that I was influenced by 20 years ago still feels really fresh and can influence, you know, mm-hmm. like 20 year olds now that feels significant. It, it feels like the way, you know, if we, the way you would watch a film noir, not just as a kid, but now you can't, you, you know how it was made, but it seems so different. You don't really get, and I, th- in, I mean, I haven't taught classes in a while, but sometimes the kids would be like, well, I can see how it was made. And right. they're like, they don't think it's, well, it's not hard. It's right. like, well, you haven't done it. Right. So it's, it's tricky. So were you, um, what kind of work were you making right then? That's white trash girl yeah, era. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, um, you know, I think when I got to grad school, even though I knew <clears throat> that that was where I was supposed to be, I was, I really was this like like kind of scrappy punky kid you know and like a sort of highly <clears throat> anti-intellectual <laughs> <laughs> which it, which just came out of also my undergraduate experience you know like we weren't it wasn't um like a uh you know a, a, a critically you know theoretical undergraduate program that I went to <clears throat> so I kind of came intellectually unprepared for graduate school, you know, so when, you know, I sat in seminars and we were reading, you know, Baudrillard or, you know, uh, you know, Judith Butler and whatnot, you know, that are, that are great, you know, they're great things to read. I really was so, I was really actively so resistant, Mm -hmm. you know, like a really bratty kid, you know, who just, and I see that now. And I mean, I realize it's just the nature of the graduate student because I see it in my graduate students now, you know? Um, and, but instead of that resistance making me feel empowered, I really, how it bummed me out. Like, I just thought, oh, gosh, I'm just this, like, stupid kid from Ohio, you know? <laughs> Who do I think I am coming to grad school in Chicago? Um, and so over Christmas break, I really, the of the my first year, I, I thought that maybe I should just drop out, you know, move back home. And I don't know, work at Joanne Fabrics or something like that. Just... <laughs> 
or <laughs> go to beauty school. I, I wasn't sure. And, but then I really got some kind of, um, maybe it was coming back home and realizing I didn't, you know, like being home for a couple of days and on day three, I thought like, I'm not moving back here. And so then I was just like, fuck it. They're not going to get rid of me. And if they think mm-hmm. that I am a loose cannon, if they think I'm resistant, I'm going to show them resistance. And so I really, was it something where you it, like actually in a class, somebody was saying stuff or do you think it was no, just I a vibe? Th- I think it was a vibe. Yeah. You know, I think it was a, a vibe and I tend to be, you know, probably overly sensitive anyway, you know, sort of like, are they talking about me? You know, <laughs> like, no, they're just, they're not it's talking normal. about you. They don't, they don't even know who you are. Um, so, so like, it was just a vibe and, but yeah. thankfully I got that vibe and I really, um, so I went, so I, I very ham fistedly started thinking, God, if I was a superhero, what would I, what, would be my power or what kind of superhero would I be? And I, and it really occurred to me that I wanted to sort of develop this kind of superhero character who mm-hmm. used everything that someone would imagine were her weaknesses. You know, she's like messy and loud and, you know, kind of her body is erupting. Um, and, but those are exactly her powers, you know? So I came back and I made three, you know, kind of live action, whatever comic book videos using found footage and like, um, super eight film and, you know, eight millimeter video that was like rescanned and all kind of like mm-hmm. crunched up and whatnot. Uh, and so that was the kind of work that I was making, you know? And so it was also a real, it was in a way a self portrait, but it was also kind of coming out of, you know, zine culture and, you know, kind of underground comics. And, and that was, you know, there was a lot of that happening in Chicago as, you know, as well. So I feel like, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of, um, women making, making videos that were, that had a lot to do with that kind of, you know, the sort of identity politics and, but also coming out of a, um, uh, yeah, sort of riot girl, um, yeah, like sort of a, a, a kind of a, a riot girl movement. Yeah, because this is early '90s. Yes. Yeah. 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 So um, yeah, and they were all you know. Sadie was friend, was really good friends with Kathleen Hanna, and you know, so it was really there was a real um, you know there was it was all a genuine kind of connection to mm-hmm. to that kind of like third wave feminism, and so that's the yeah that was the work that that I was doing at that time, and and <clears throat> and it just uh, you know I, n- I never thought that. I mean, I really made those just sophomorically, you know, irritate my grad advisors and they ended up doing really well. I think as it was, they were, um, you know, I think that there was an interest in, you know, sort of like girl made, you know, girl made videos and sort of, you know, a, a, a sense of that third wave feminism and how that was manifesting in art or literature or music, et cetera. And, um, but they were also super popular overseas almost instantly, oh, you know? And yeah. so... And so I think that that's still, I mean, and I feel like in a way I keep, I've made, I keep making white trash girl, you know, I keep making movies about unruly women, you know, who are really kind of these misfits on the outside who are sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm doing just fine here on the outside, you know, and so you better watch yourself, you know, I mean, I feel like the production values are higher and, you know, like (laughs) white trash girl's older and maybe she's, you know, her, her bodily fluids are less, are less toxic now, but I feel like I'm still making that same film in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's a real clear trajectory from, for me at least from, you know, white trash girl to, you know, the, the brand new films, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, subject matter and where before, you know, using found footage or rescanning footage, the kind of the dirtiness of the, 
or the darkness had a lot to do with the real texture of the video. Whereas now I feel like I like to make, you know, pretty images, but, or like that they're that, like that sticky, you know, HD image. Um, I love that, but I also, that the dirtiness or the darkness is in the kind of characters or the dialogue or their actions or the props, you know, mm-hmm. or just the general kind of, um, the general sort of story. And they're still very popular overseas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially with with the new one with Million Miles Away and Blood Below the Skin. Mm-hmm. It it does have that feeling of, I mean, it's very obvious, all those things, like all the uh, the trajectory coming up through the late 80s and the early 90s mm-hmm. and stuff. But it's interesting, do you feel like the, because you use real kids, mm-hmm. and do they, is that distant history for them? Is that something that they know about, just those scenes from the 80s and 90s or is it are they just like all of us like you you got to look for it if you want it no you know I think that it's like where where I feel like we're in a kind of um a, a sort of like a fourth wave of of feminism or even just sort of social activism mm-hmm. I guess it's not lost on at least the girls that I have worked with mm. you know like they more so even than my college students sort of get um a kind of, uh, um, you know, get a kind of DIY social activism, you know, mm-hmm. and understand the significance of um, of feminism, for instance, you know, in their lives as as teenage girls. I mean, for the most part, that wasn't the case with like every girl that we cast for A Million Miles Away, for instance. But when I would have conversations with them about that, it I wanted it to have a kind of a, let's say, an '80s vibe in terms of maybe the fashion, mm-hmm. but with the kind of underpinnings of a sort of 90s riot girl, you know, attitude. Um, I mean, they might not know those exact references, but they got the general Id- sort of idea of what I was, you know, what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's amazing. I mean, like so many of those girls are my are my Facebook friends. <laughs> and obviously I cast about, I cast three of the girls again for Blood Below the Skin and and you know, they're they're really wildly active, socially engaged young women. I think way more than I was. I mean, certainly they are living in a in a in a much uh weirder time, you know, than I was. And Chicago is a different place to grow up than Columbus, Ohio. But you know, I'm really uh, amazed at how much they they embrace a sense of, you know, social justice, you know. And I think it's just a kind of survival technique because things are, like, so still so fucked up. You know, if we think about race or we think about campus rapes or, you know, we could just go on, you know, like, yeah. on and on. You know, like, they really get it. They're not living in a sort of a sheltered way. And so I actually think that when I have asked them to to sort of, like, embody that in my film it's like they're just playing themselves on some level you know yeah you have so many speaking parts in million miles away mm-hmm. and in both of the films and 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 it's always interesting it's funny especially with kuchar because even from the start they kind of had other people but you always feel like ah oh, it's just a couple of people and they slowly mm-hmm. moved to to sort of incorporate all those students and stuff and the younger mm-hmm. people and convince them have you found well well first off um when we talked a little bit about this last night you did find people who were or kids who had acting experience right. mm-hmm. 
did they and they came from theater experience or yeah primarily theater experience I mean you know like I said last night Chicago has this really because Chicago is a great theater town mm-hmm. that trickles down through the high schools and, sh- and so so many of the you know even public high schools public charter schools etc have a really vibrant music and theater program and um, so like all of we wanted all the girls to be able to sing at least we they had to be able to sing because I wanted them to be a functioning choir yeah. and um then, uh, but most of them had had singing experience through like musical theater, you know, sure. not just choir or like you know their garage band, but through. I mean, they're really they are like the the cats joke that sort of exists in a million miles away was not a joke, you know. Like at some point between takes, like they would bust into. Um, a song from cats. A song from cats. <laughs> you know, yeah. and with zero irony also, oh, and yeah. I'd be like. Uh, you know, Cats is a stupid musical. Or, you know, like, <laughs> Cats is dumb. And they would be like, what are you, you know, like, get out. Mind your own business. Or, they defend it. That's yeah, great. For sure. So they're, like, these really, I mean, as hard as they seem in, like, in the film, mm-hmm. they're these, you know, musical theater dorks. Um, but it was significant mm-hmm. that they had some kind of um, performance experience. And they were all, you know, so poised and so professional i mean between takes they turned into girl like super chatty giggly girls but you know when we were like all right we're getting ready to roll like zipped it all back up and they were fantastic and they were really nice to each other um you know we didn't experience any real life kind of mean girls scenario you know they were really lovely to each other and they were they bonded with each other i mean there were a group of adults on set who who consisted of the you know the the crew and they did not care at all about us you know it was really about them you know I mean they were impressed with Jennifer Eslin you know they sort of were really interested in in her performance and every time she would cry they were really genuinely worried about her you know and she kept saying you know I'm acting you know that's what I do (laughs) I can cry and I can stop crying um yeah so and that's and one of the reasons I worked with the same amount of girls or the I just recast girls for blood below the skin was partially because I knew them and I knew that they were directable and um, uh, you know I so I knew that I could work with them again and I just I I mean this is this has been the case also for all of my films I really like working with people who I trust and who I sort of can predict what you know well what I can sort of get out of from them whether that's the you know the sound person or the editor or the you know the actors or you know people who are helping with location or whatever um and once i once we had cast all those girls i mean we actually wrote more dialogue for them because i thought god these girls are so great like we have to give everybody a line of dialogue Mm. you know outside of the roll call you know so so because it had been like the first pass of the script had primarily the conversation happening just between the sort of the first girl who's got the kind of redheaded girl who's got the cat sweatshirt on and and Jennifer Mm -hmm. who's the conductor. Um, But then once we cast all the girls and they really seemed so uh, able to take on lines of dialogue, Mm -hmm. you know, I was like, we got to give everybody a line of dialogue at least outside of role. And so we did. How did you, uh, when did the, the flip come from maybe installation work to script work or is the script always Mm -hmm. kind of around? Yeah. I feel like the script was always around. I think that the installation based work came from, um, both having like I didn't go to film school you know I went to art school for grad school and so um and it was you know I feel like there was this uh you know at at art school there was a kind of a hierarchy 
of, um, you know, the object makers, the painters and the sculptors and, and, uh, people showing in a proper gallery. And then, you know, people who were like me, who were kind of making these, this, you know, these short films, but maybe they were also kind of video art, you know, we weren't sure if there were people, programmers or curators who weren't sure, like if they were going to be at a, in a, a screening series, like a single channel, or do you, you know, do you loop it on a monitor, et cetera? And, um, so was there one kind that you ended up liking most? I've always liked, I'm, I'm an, I'm a projection, single channel, you know, theater person, you know, like I even as a consumer in a gallery have no patience for installation video. I just don't, you know, I, or it's not what I'm going to want. It's, I mean, I want, I love the experience of, of sitting down in a, in a theater, the lights go down and, you know, whether it's something that's two hours or two minutes, like really w- watching something as it, col- you know, collectively with the audience and watching it big projected with good sound, like, you know, I'm a sucker for that. And so I've always, you know, I feel like my installation work, which I've done, um, was sometimes a, a little, you know, um, again, a kind of a bratty backlash against like, like I can, you know, take this painters, I can make a, you know, a video for a gallery. And also sometimes gallerists or curators asking me to contribute something to a gallery show. Um, uh, which sometimes I've said no, you know, like it's didn't like I, it's too sort of much work to make another piece that's only going to go in a gallery or, or maybe what they want to put in the gallery just doesn't, I kind of want someone to come in and watch, um, uh, three minutes of what should what is a single channel theatrical you know half an hour short or whatever even you know yeah it's a type of work yeah exactly so um and but even in the sort of the more kind of abstract work videos that that had a a sort of a heftier let's say gallery life than they did kind of theatrical life Mm -hmm. uh for me there was always a story in there somewhere you know there was always a narrative i've always been completely invested in you know in narratives and you know, I think I'm still, but there's still that, you know, it's like that's that kind of like punky part of me that can't fully go conventional narrative. You know, I still have to sort of like resist it a little bit. Like I kind of compare it to being like if I was a a tailor or something, you know, like, and someone came in and said, you know, I want a pair of pants. I could make them a really great pair of pants and they would realize like the pockets were sewn shut or whatever, <laughs> whatever. or that they, they were like disappearing pants, you know, and 48 hours later they would have, you know, just um, evaporated <laughs> or something. So there's always a part of me that can't go fully, you know, conventional that has to sort of, um, you know, twist it. Yeah. A little or a lot. So then, so eventually you started writing dialogue in yeah. there too. Yeah. And it was a real organic thing. Like the yeah. first kind of narr- more narrative thing that I did with performers, I basically just used um, friends of mine mm-hmm. who I knew were, um, had kind of big personalities and asked them to more or less play themselves. And it was a combination of some improvised dialogue and then dialogue that I had written. Um, and that was a blast, you know, sort of like also being then, you know, sort of behind the camera and not in front of the camera, uh, and, you know, directing, you know, performances, uh, that had a little bit of dialogue, but dialogue is still really hard to write. Even in films that I really love, there's oftentimes like a moment where I sort of cringe over the dialogue, you know, cause I know that, you know, you've got to get a certain amount of information out, you know, and I think like, God, that was a that was a real awkward way to get that information out. Um, so, so so a lot of the early kind of narrative stuff that used performers was I tried to keep the dialogue at a kind of a minimum or keep the dialogue really 
really um, staged or co- yeah, or really conversational, mm-hmm. and then try to to show a lot through, um, you know, just through the action, mm-hmm. you know, or through kind of like long takes where you could watch some kind of narrative gesture, you know, unravel, and you understood what was happening without a character saying, "And now I'm going to, you know, do this or whatever." Mm-hmm. But you also do a really great thing. In uh, in in million, and I can't remember if you do it in blood, but the the texting and you uh-huh, actually are using uh-huh. subtitles, right? Yep. And did, was that something you sort of latched on to? Like, well, this is obviously how kids communicate. Did you sort of think, all right, I want this to be said, but it wouldn't it be great if it wasn't said? And yeah. How did the text come out? Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I I like um, the. I mean, I, I really love in certain films where the there's kind of inaudible dialogue you know like Meek's cutoff has some inaudible moments or um tree of life has some really great Mm -hmm. you know just people are talking but you're we're not sure what they're saying and I loved that because you can still glean the like the temperature of that scene and the tension of that scene and just a couple little words that aren't I mean I didn't find it frustrating I found it fantastic that that there was like the the you know the writer the and director were you know like making the audience do a little bit of work you know um or or even kind of implicating us in the 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 sort of um the the mumble of how how impossible it is to really communicate verbally you know accurately but you know i also wanted yeah to think about these kind of yeah the sort of like in like nonverbal language nonverbal dialogue and um secret you know secret dialogue mm-hmm. right yeah. but that's not the kind of secret dialogue like it drives me crazy that we don't really know what um what bill murray whispers to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. <laughs> for some reason i'm like what did he say <laughs> um so not that kind of secret language, but that kind of like where we as the audience sort of know what those girls are whispering to each other, you know, but the rest of the girls don't and the teacher doesn't, you know, or in the texting, you know, sort of um, we as the audience understand, you know, that the girl texting is sort of lying about where she is or she, you know, delivers that really kind of like snarky, you know, text back to this other remote the remote girl and the other girl in the room has no idea what she's, what she's said, but we as the audience become implicated in that secret language or in the, and I will rise, which is an earlier one where the, the girls are riding on each other's backs, you know, which is, a, which is, you know, is, is also that secret language is also about a kind of intimacy among girls, you know, that's sometimes it's sexual and sometimes it's just, you know, um, it's a deep friendship that I think we don't, that cinematically is not is not portrayed let's say in kind of conventional movies you know girls are pitted against each other and the secrets are mean secrets or rumors that people invent to kind of tear down someone else so this so I wanted to also present the secret language that really portrayed more accurately these deep bonds that these girls have you know that are just their own against the adults against each other and it's and it's also for me like a really great way to to add narrative and to add dialogue without someone straight up saying sort of like, are you going to go to prom? You know, no prom's for dickheads. And, but, but, but in blood that, that line comes back again, you know, in a, in a spoken, you know, in a spoken line. And, um, and then, yeah. And in blood, there's like the, the sort of mind melt, 
you know, kind of language. I think the hard part with the language is trying literally to figure out what, um, how to deal with, uh, how to deal with it graphically, you know, like, do you just use it as, do we just, do you just subtitle it? Does it have, so like in, in a million miles away that when the girl is like hollering, you know, expletives into the, you know, tiger's belly or whatever, you know, um, we made a, a conscious decision to subtitle that, but to also do it in these kind of transparent pinks over each other. You know what I'm talking about? Where she's like, you know, shit, goddamn motherfucking shit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so not just, you know, not just subtitle it cause it's, cause it's muffled to hear, but make that a kind of a, a graphic, this mm-hmm. really beautiful little pale pink, you know, um, stacked expletives and make that a kind of a graphic thing. Yeah. Cause I love when that happens in, um, in films. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like Quentin Tarantino, but I love, but I think a perfect cinema like cinematic moment is in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurman says, don't be a, you know, and she outlines square and then graphically this little square comes up like that's so stupid and it's so great, you know, and the same thing happens in like Jane Campion's the piano where the little girl is sort of telling the story about how her dad died. And then there's this, this like half a second, um, animation of like a little guy catching on fire Mm, and that, that that doesn't happen. It's not, it doesn't happen again in the whole film, you know, and it's not, I mean, obviously there's like Lots of lots of filmmakers who who sort of experiment with that's not quite magical realism, but who who experiment with the form of the film and realize like if you're watching a film, you can put it, you can paste anything on top of there, you know, which is why yeah. it's also like that or like in the 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 kind of props coming alive. I feel like is also um, like a narrative element that becomes a a it's content, but it becomes like a graphic element that doesn't have to be. We don't have to explain it or I don't have to I don't want to explain it or talk about it in the film itself um but I can do this thing this thing that's you know graphic that you know we because it's a invented you know it's a fiction film mm-hmm. there's one part in uh <clears throat> in Miles where Jennifer will talk more about how amazing she is in a little bit but uh she gets a text from her boyfriend or the guy yes. she's with and yes. it's this insane amount <laughs> yeah. and i'm assuming that's made up but did you have to do research about text talk no i mean well i'm like the real i'm not that, that clunky person who when i get those um those just letters uh-huh. you know that stand for something else i have no idea what they mean <laughs> like just it was maybe two months ago that i had to ask someone one of my students i said what does nsfw <laughs> I mean, what is that? And they're like, not safe for work. And I'm like, oh God, like my whole life is not safe for work. You know, like I, you know, or, you know, I know when's the last time any of us had a job where you couldn't open up. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't want that job. That's for sure. You know, but (laughs) so I am, uh, you know, I was definitely sort of behind in all of those little shortcuts. Yeah. Um, but so the one you use in the film is f- totally fabricated. Yeah, cause you know, how many letters is it? Oh, like, I think it's 40. Yeah. It's very long. And you know, Jennifer was at some point she said, am I, do I, am I, do I want me to memorize this? And I said, oh yeah. And she was like, okay. And, um, but I just liked the idea that there could be this very long heart kind of heartbreaking, um, shortcut for a breakup that you would that would be acceptable to put in this really long, you know, I just wanted to be, I wanted it to be totally outrageous because it was something that I was like, why did, why can't you just write the letters out, you know, to students or students or other people who would like send me those little abbreviated things, which to me, sometimes the abbreviations seem to be more of a hassle to type out than just, 
typing out what you wanted to say to me, you know, or it would take me longer to figure out what they were saying than it took them to type it out, whatever. And so that those kind of shortcuts were significant. And, you know, I feel like I have a tendency to be that also that person who maybe, um, has, let's say, you know, broken up with someone over a text message or (laughs) something done that really not, um, mature, no, you know, that, that not mature thing. Mm-hmm. And, but what's funny in Q and A is people have asked me if that's a real, if that's real, mm-hmm. you know, is that a real thing? And I said, no, well, I hope not. You know, maybe now it is, you yeah. know? Um, but, uh, no, the, the event is real breaking up. Yeah. Bre- breaking up is real. Yeah. But that, <laughs> but that sort of abbreviation for that long breakup is not real. And that always gets a really good, um, in audiences so far that always gets a good amount of like tense laughter because like the reveal of that, that the girl, that, that the girls know what that is. They all kind of like, God, you know, <laughs> and that they know what that is, but that she doesn't. And that it's this, you know, so then they kind of, um, like the audience giggles when the girls make that noise as though they know what, sh- what the, what that means. And then when it's revealed what that means, then the audience is like, Oh, you know, like they realize that she's just been totally broken up with, you know, over this long text message. So, well, and her performance with it's so good. We can talk about how awesome she is now. She plays the, uh, is she a substitute? Yeah. Drama or a music teacher in Mm -hmm. in miles. And then the mother Mm -hmm. in blood. Yeah. And whether it's like coming up with that tear, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And not actory at all. She really pulls it off mm-hmm. pretty well. Or like pounding meat with eggs and making mm-hmm. this very sad meal mm-hmm. in blood. Uh, are some of those actions based on people or how much did you work with her to come up with stuff? Um, well, th- one of the, thing- the great things about her is that she really is a professional. You know, she's had a huge amount of experience in front of the camera. Mm. Um, she is a really accomplished Chicago-based improv, you know, actor so she can like get get there immediately Mm -hmm. you know she just has it in there and in real life she's super funny which I think is also sort of helps honestly helps her to get to these to the reverse of that which are these much more sort of sad and and kind of um dark deeper places and she's got this incredibly expressive um face and so um you know, the in a, mil- in a Million Miles Away, that scene came from, uh, it was sort of a test for As With Knives and Skin, which is the feature script that will be made into a feature film. Soon. Soon. Um, and it was one of those things that's like I've never, you know, I've written a bunch of scripts and I've never sort of waited around and done nothing and, th- and thought like, well, until I get, you know, my financing for my feature, I'm just going to do nothing and talk about how I'm making a feature film. You know, I'm always like, well, I'm just going to make another short. I'll just make another short. And so I really wanted to, in the, in the feature script, there's, there's the, 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 the girls choir is, is a kind of recurring theme in a, in a Greek chorus kind of way, very much so. But I really wanted to, when I, when I sort of adapted a singing scene for a million, a million miles away, um, I, it, I didn't want them to just to sort of like sing and it to be just this singing moment. I wanted to build a, a, its own kind of narrative around it. And, um, so I wanted to, you know, see what would happen when this sort of pack of girls who seem very resistant and, you know, and, uh, uh, mean, frankly, at the beginning, when they are in sync through this song really pull this 
you know, kind of performance out of, or no, pull this sort of sadness out of the, out of the teacher. Not unlike the way that like, if you are in a really, if you're, you know, if you're feeling it and you're driving and a certain song comes on, you know, like I'm prone to crying in the car, you know? (laughs) And, you know, and sometimes I think, God, is that a real emotion or is it, is it, inspire is it sort of more like melodrama it's being inspired by the song and on some level I don't care but but I but I wanted to kind of test that out you know in this film and you know she cried every single time she cried every time and 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 in the and that beautiful just gentle you know where it's like you know I mean it's it's not like that kind of ugly sort of cinema cry that we see that's you know that just feels I don't know, or rehearsed, rehearsed, but that it's really deep. You know, it's really, it's coming from someplace really deep. Comedians are dark. Yeah, for, no, for sure, for sure. And then in, um, in blood, I mean, on the one hand, I wanted to sort of like pay homage to the meat, the meatloaf scene in Jean Dillman, uh, which I really love. And, um, and that's not necessarily like, if that's not some, a reference that people get, that's fine. But I really love that, that long take of her making that, meatloaf and just thinking about that character that female protagonist in that film as being so significant and so interesting and and in her in in that film being uh you know for a kind of female made you know sort of like feminist film with this pretty difficult protagonist it's a really significant one um but then I also really like this combination of of sort of um female and abject you know and so the this this idea that there that's the the mom um who you know who we who's in the kitchen well the kitchen is a, can be a pretty gross place you know like cook, cooking can be pretty gross and you know um the kitchen is where the knives are you know like <laughs> sort of like thinking about that thinking about that combination is is also uh, you know, if you, if you are the kind of, uh, you know, partner who just imagines that you want your, you know, your wife, um, to just stay in the kitchen. Well, I mean like, watch out cause the kitchen's a pretty weird place or the kitchen can be a pretty weird place. So yeah. I wanted that scene to, yeah, to have where this ordinary act of just making a meatloaf can really turn, um, grotesque and to have a real tension to it, you know, and that we see her failing, you know pretty significantly at that um task yeah and did she uh, or how did you find her she and i um met in chicago uh we were both um hired to do this really weird kind of corporate gig where we were talking we were talking to um the ceos or the no no the not the ceos but like the directors Mm -hmm. um for this uh really high-end PR firm in Chicago who mm-hmm. wanted to, t- who wanted a lesson in storytelling. Like they yeah. wanted to get better at their, what do, they, what do you call it? Like your elevator pitch or whatever. Yeah. So they asked um, me as a filmmaker and scriptwriter. they asked Jennifer as a kind of improv actor. And then there was a guy who's a, who is a novelist, you know, and we're yeah. the, like the total weirdos, you know, who come into this corporate gig yeah. and have to explain to these, you know, su- super high up, super high up corporate people, like how to tell a better story. Wow. And, um, so, and she did a little kind of improv performance that was super impressive. I mean, when she first started, sometimes I get really nervous around live performances, you know, mm-hmm. cause you just never, cause sometimes it's like, I get embarrassed for the person or I'm worried that something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So when she stood up to do this to the, to, she was going to do a kind of live telling of when she first moved to New York, I thought, Oh God, this is going to just 
poker face. Just don't, you know. <laughs> and it was incredible, you know. Like her as a performer was really moving and amazing. And and um, so when I knew that I needed a woman who basically physically, you know, kind of fit her description, I asked her if she would at all be interested. And um, you know, she said, "Yeah, for sure." And it worked out really. It worked out really well. And it's uh, she hadn't done much film acting or even stage acting in a while because she's mm. the director of the theater company that she, you know, so she's primarily doing administrative stuff and kind of oh, planning wow. shows. And so what's been really nice about, about this and, you know, she and I have talked about it as, you know, she has just said it's been, uh, I like, it's kind of reinvigorated her, her need and her want to sort of either be on stage acting or be in front of a camera you, you know, That's acting. Great. And so when, you know, when I was casting for blood, it was, it seemed like a no brainer to, you know, to recast her. And she'd gone through a physical transformation. She had lost a lot of weight in between the two films. I mean, partially, mostly because the, the actual theater that she runs moved locations and did a big build out, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that, cause intense. I was like, have you lost some weight? And she's like, Oh yeah, it's just, I'm so stressed out, you know? Yeah. And, um, so it was interesting that, that we, that she, that I feel like she looks like a different person or she's you know it's a mm-hmm. she's a different character and that she you know she seems like a a different person and then to kind of cast her opposite um Kelsey who plays her daughter and to have the two of them and I didn't know how that would work but I think that they did a great job um yeah. to have them really have to form you know a very difficult sort of relationship sort of on set you know I thought was really great and I'll and I feel like I will you know, I'll continue to, to cast her. I think I, I owe her a, 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 a comedy role, you know, <laughs> less crying. I owe her a comedy role. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, um, did the kids like being around her seeing someone like, I mean, was she, she joking around? Yes. Oh my gosh. They person. were, they, well, some of them I think had, had recognized her from law and order. I was never a Law and Order watcher, so you know. How is that possible? Do you have a I don't TV? Know. I do, I do, but I don't know. I mean, now if it's on, I try and catch reruns, only so, if, so, so I can a, see if I can see. Was her. she a, re- a recur- recurring character? Or? She was. She was, I guess. Um, who's the main guy? Brass Briscoe. Brasco. Briscoe. Yeah, okay. for a while it's changed. So, yeah. so, so she was his daughter. So uh, she was on okay. for a little while as his daughter. Right. And so they had recognized her and were really kind of starstruck in this very awesome. sweet way, you know? And I think she was genuinely nervous because it was full on a pack of, of teenage girls, Oh yeah, you know? And, um, but, uh, yeah, so they were, I think for them, cause we were, sh- when we would shoot it, um, so the girls were singing to, uh, to play back, mm-hmm. but, uh, when we were shooting towards Jennifer, I asked them to, actually sing you know sing to the to the playback not just mouth the words so that like jennifer could sort of like feel their actual voices in the room and could really sort of like that that could swell so i think that that was you know that affected you that affected her but then like her performance was so great that like i said you know when i would be like okay cut i mean the girls were like are you okay oh my gosh are you like i we don't we don't want to do it again you know like and i was like (laughs) we're doing it again you know she's fine okay she's a (laughs) professional um but that was like, what's really nice about putting someone like Jennifer, who is really a professional, super experienced, um, actress with, for instance, Kelsey, who's the sort of primary girl in blood who loves acting, who's done a bunch of stage acting, but is really just beginning. And she's 
as young as the character. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that she just turned sixteen or something, yeah. you know. And um, so putting the two of them together and watching, you know, Kelsey, who I adore, but really is can be a real difficult teenager. You know, she's not. She doesn't. She does less eye rolling with me than her mother, but I get it. You know, that <laughs> um, she to watch to watch Kelsey really perform with Jennifer and kind of for Jennifer, you know, not even for me, but like for Jennifer and, and, and Jennifer even also performing for Kelsey, uh, not, not because of Kelsey's experience or because of Kelsey's, let's say like her, um, you know, professionalism, but I think because, because of Kelsey's inexperience, she also brings like a real genuine kind of vulnerability and because she's also, you know, 16 years old. So, Um, and I like that combination, you know, of, I think when you can, and I've done this a lot, like putting, you know, professional experience actors with either less experience or even non-actors because maybe the non-actors like look great. They have like a really great look in front of the camera or something. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, if you, if you've got the right, you know, um, non-professional or inexperienced actor, you know, their performances just get a million times better when they're with someone who's. Um, professional. That's interesting. Yeah. I never thought about it. It's like they wanted to perform for her. Oh, yeah. That's a really strong yeah. connection. And like, and genuinely, if you've got like this professional experience actor who delivers a line in a certain way, like then the person like is g- genuinely sort of just responds back to it and it feels really great. And so then, because sometimes if it's, you know, if it's two super professional people, then they don't, they're not even listening to what the other person is saying. They're just kind of delivering their lines as they know them. And it's not really, you can't, can't kind of Mm -hmm. get into what feels like a really genuine dialogue. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you know, everybody that I know that's seen it, whether it's been through work or just, uh, watching as a film fan yeah. has really like always remarked on like how well they think teenage life was captured. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of a goal or for sure? It, yeah, for sure. And you know, that's always, that's so, I mean the, it's that, that is like the greatest compliment in a way to have people say like my, one of my, one of my colleagues who's a, a gay man in his maybe mid sixties, mm-hmm. um, he just watched it again because I sh- we were t- team teaching this semester and I sh- and I showed that t- I showed Emily Masway to the class that we're team teaching, and he came up to me afterwards and he was like, oh, I mean, he was nearly like in tears. He was like, I just love that film so much. And he had seen it before, and I said, I I love that you love it because it's not it re- it doesn't reflect you in any regard. And he said, no, but I like I really feel like a teenage girl when I'm like I really get into that, and so. Yeah. Um, because to a certain point, angst is angst. Sure, and We for can sure. all connect to yeah. it, but we mm-hmm. are definitely going to have these different tracks mm-hmm. yeah. of it and what you learned growing up. Yeah, and I, so I appreciate so much that people who are the farthest thing from a teenage girl uh, can connect to it, but I, but the, the girls themselves really like it. Oh, that's good. You know, and that's that very good. that feels significant to me yeah. that the girls themselves feel like I got it right. You know, and that that it's that I am that it's a a kind of a gift for them, you know, that even though it's a short film and it has, you know, experimental elements, um, that are Mm -hmm. exist in the narrative, you know, for me, it's a, it is a, it is a, like an, uh, I'm trying to contribute to the, or I'm trying to actually provide some kind of alternative to twilight or other, you know, movies that contemporary movies that are made for teenage girls that I just think kind of get it wrong. You know, I mean, I grew up with, Mm -hmm. with John Hughes, Right. movies i grew up with pretty Pink or 16 candles or valley girl you know i mean in a million miles away um the title of that comes from a plimsoll song that's played 
in a club scene in, in Valley Girl, you know, oh. so it's a real like that, that kind of 80s movie reference, you know, was really is there very directly. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, even though, you know, those, those films themselves lack a kind of let's say racial diversity or sort of, you know, geographic diversity or something, mm-hmm. you know, I still feel like there were a lot of really rich, like those films feel fresh to me in terms of how, you know, teenage life is portrayed and, and, you know, so I, so I just I feel like these teen girls now, they just like have the shittiest kind of movies to, you know, to turn yeah. to. So, um, you know, and so the, the feature length is a, you know, is another, is, for me it's supposed to be about it's for teenagers you know also so it's going to be I mean there's some darkness and some maybe um you know some uh sexual aspects that uh are that they're that I think are completely still appropriate for you know a film that I would say yeah you know like a 14 year old can see this film and should see this film but it's really meant as a as a you know, as a genuine portrayal of teenage life for those teenage girls. But of course, like, you know, I want it to translate to other people, you know, and for, yeah. So yeah, it's a huge compliment always when someone says like, who's, who's the farthest thing from a teenage girl is like, I get it. That was like, I got it. You know, Yeah. did those girls know screaming for vengeance that they know Judas priest? Uh, did you have to train them. No, yeah, they, they very few of them knew the original song, <laughs> you know. And I and I forbid them to listen to the original until oh, really? a, until after we had recorded it. Oh, funny. You know. So they and were they, just doing karaoke, blind karaoke. Absolutely, I guess? Yeah. yeah. And so the woman Jennifer Lennon, who was a conductor for the Chicago Children's Choir, mm-hmm. who we reached out to to, to um, arrange the Judas Priest song, mm-hmm. and Jennifer is so. Like she's, she's a, um, a composer and a singer and she has this like lovely little sort of lullaby voice and she's beautiful and sort of gentle and quiet. And so when Steven and I met with her and said, uh, here's the song we want you to, to arrange as a lamentation, you know? And she was like, oh, fantastic. Of course I'll do it. It's, you know, and so then she (laughs) sent us back the, the first version of it or the version that she taught to the girls and she was singing it. And I was like sobbing in the car again, here's me sobbing in the car while I was listening to it because she really did like her own voice was like the girls. It really is this, you know, beautiful sort of lamentation in in a, in a, um, uh, and so the girls themselves, you know, when they were finally allowed to listen to the, you know, the original, <laughs> of course they were like, oh, that's a terrible song, you know? <laughs> and I was like, easy, easy, you know? Um, and sometimes I wonder if that, I mean, you know, that's maybe the part where the like teenage girls who are watching that film just maybe like the song for the song. But then like our generation, mm. when you start to hopefully, right. When you start to hear them sing that song, you're like, what is that song? Don't I know that song, you know? Yeah, and absolutely. so, so that's this other thing that kind of can hopefully kind of like, like smell or something, right. Take you back to a certain sort of era. You know, it's also that thing of like, I mean, I have to assume, but then like when our parents hear the golden oldies rework some other way, mm-hmm. and then you realize like, oh fuck, man, this is a song I really love when I was twelve, the golden oldie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because it's, it's not, it's definitely not crazy anymore that a song we grew up with is in a musical. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, reworked for yeah. TV, something. That's right. And then, and then, then unfortunately, I sounded like parents when I heard that. Yeah, didn't sell a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Also, there must be some way for us to get this to Rob Halford. 
I know, right? I think he would love it. I think he would love it too. I mean, that's honestly one of the reasons that I that I picked this song too. At some point, I really I knew that we had to use. Okay, so the, mm-hmm. originally we were going to use maybe like a a New Order song or something. I'm mm-hmm. like a big New Order fan, and so I was listening to that, and I was like, but those that song those songs are already sort of smart and sensitive, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. We couldn't it's really. Ch- I mean, almost just, two on the nose. Yeah, exactly. So changing it just to sort of a like a female voice isn't going to do much, and so I thought metal. We got to go for metal, and. So I spent a huge amount of time pouring through tons of, of, um, you know, of metal tracks mm-hmm. and really scrutinizing the, the, um, the lyrics. Cause that would be important. Okay. We would be able to hear the lyrics and you know, I mean, there's a lot of metal songs that the other have. Oh, there's so many Neanderthal cra- lyrics. Yeah. Crazy lyrics. Run and, to the mountains or, or whatever. Like, Viking like, themes. I or, cannot believe I liked kiss songs. So yeah. Much. Kiss like, songs, you know, that's, Oh, that's so fucked up. Crazy, either nonsensical, fantastical kind of lyrics or like really misogynistic lyrics. And so I had to. And so then when I came across You've Got Nothing Coming, listened to it, read the lyrics. You know, I mean, it's a such a little self-esteem booster, you know, and I thought it was super significant then. And because I had and I and I had already known this that, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so that Rob Halford came out as gay and that felt like. Ah, that's really significant that then by having my girls sing this song, it, it has a, you know, it can kind of change the temperature of the song, but you know, he, he was already doing that and we had no idea, you know, that that was, that that was a real anthem for, you know, for him as well when he, you know, like wrote and was, and was singing that and we don't really realize the significance of it, you know, till much later that, that he was already kind of disrupting that own sort of masculine metal image you know so yeah i think that he would i think he would like it a whole bunch definitely (laughs) and then um the the feature is a totally different story the feature is a i mean the the, both for both a million miles away and for blood below the skin they kind of Mm -hmm. borrow from themes for the feature yeah, because that's know? what I was wondering, since you made these two close yeah. to each yeah. other. Early, well, you're finishing one, and Miles is like a year old. That's right. And so they borrow from those from themes that are in the in the feature. I mean, partially because it's like, I just want to kind of see if I can do it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're sort of like, oh, let me try this. And it's very common, right, to make a short, like, in anticipation of yeah, the feature. Exploring yeah, exploring styles and things, for sure. And so the, yeah, so the feature is... Um, I mean, I, I guess it's got a little a little Twin Peaks in it in that there's a kind of girl that goes missing at the beginning, which is sort of like what kind of starts the the story. But it primarily is, the structure is much more like Blood Below the Skin in that it kind of follows these three girls who are sort of from different kind of, you know, social cliques um, through, uh, you know, a, a month in their lives or whatever, you know, while one of them is developing a love affair with another girl and while another is dealing with like her completely, um, you know, failing mother mm-hmm. and while yet another one who isn't, who isn't portrayed at all, for instance, in blood below the skin, but exists in the, in the, in the future is, a is, uh, you know, the sort of like super, punky girl who's being pursued by the like the captain of the football team or something like that like it's a in that part in a way is like that that real romeo and juliet sort of moment which i just find kind of irresistible i love a good love story you know don't tell anybody you know but um so but it really and then you know and then there's this whole other like tier of adults who are just 
making horrible decisions, you know? So it's a, it's a much heftier cast. Um, but, but also in a similar way as both a million miles away and blood below the skin, you know, at the end, it's these three girls who also sort of, you know, come together, um, in, in a, in a way that maybe we didn't sort of see coming at the beginning, you know, to sort of support each other after, you know, their parents have all kind of made these, these much, you know, bigger, weirder mistakes, you know? So it's also like the, the structure of it isn't the structure of it is it's, I mean, it's a, I feel, I feel like the structure is tight, but it's not that kind of, you know, conventional, like, uh, okay, they, they go into a bank, the like the, the the robbery goes bad they're going to spend the next 12 hours in the bank or whatever you right. know it's not that sort of it I, is still but there's so many kind of like plot progression even like yeah like how we do like what john hughes does right and teen movies can be uh, stuck in a lot of cliches really easily mm-hmm. you know a lot of tropes and stuff mm-hmm. do you feel like since since you've become a mother do you see those films differently um or maybe since when you saw them as a kid, mm-hmm. they're going to stick with you mm-hmm. always as that sort of connection. Yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah. I mean, I feel like it's the latter that I, you know, 16 Candles was on cable the other day, you know, mm-hmm. and of course, like, I can't not watch it, you know, <laughs> and. But you probably still identify more with oh, Molly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, uh, yeah. And again, like that, that, you know, that feel, those films feel uh, really fresh. And I, and you know, yeah, now having kids, I just think that the, that the sort of like the films that they have access to, I mean, you know, my boys don't necessarily want to watch, uh, the, or they're, you know, I mean, I shouldn't be sort of gender biased by any means, but they, I know what they seek out and it's not frozen, you know, for instance or whatever, you know? Um, uh, but the, you know, I feel like their choices for films that maybe are, are kind of reflect, reflecting back on them are really limited, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. I just remember patterning, you know, my fashion after, you know, all of those Molly Ringwald characters mm-hmm. or, you know, those were the, all of the, you know, John Hughes would score his films. So, or the musical production was so fantastic. And that was, those were the songs I was listening to. So it was really significant to, you know, to watch a mainstream film and to have, um, you know, a, a new order song in there or like an OMD song or like the Thompson twins or something like that, you know, because that was still, those were not radio hits, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was that. still like those songs were, um, were still considered like, you know, alternative, indie, yeah. alternative. It, progressive, yeah. you know, or something. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And so, but that was still reflecting what me and my, you know, me and my friends were, were listening to and we were, you know, getting, you know, begging, begging to my mom to drop me off at like the thrift store to buy clothes, which, which she just thought was such an embarrassment. Like I will buy you a new dress. And I was like, I don't want a new dress, you know? And so, and so thinking about like how that was, how those films became in a way, I don't know, like my religion on Mm -hmm. some level, you know, because you, you just wanted something that reflected back, you know, if your parents didn't get it, if your peers didn't get it, you know, like, like Samantha Baker gets it, you know, Mm -hmm. or something. And I was asked in an interview recently if, uh, you know, if I thought that that was still, you know, the case for girls. And I do, I still think that, well, teenagers, I mean, I don't, I can't speak for the boys, but I think that that, you know, I think girls still retreat into their room and turn on 
you know, their iPods or their, you know, they still turn on music and sort of get lost in that moment where, you know, they, even if it's, you know, Taylor Swift or something like that, you know, like Taylor gets them. And as much as I might find Taylor Swift, you know, nauseating, I at least appreciate that, that, you know, that, that somehow she speaks to, you know, some lost 14 year old, you know, who just feels like she's the only, only one in the world who feels a certain way, you know, and smart kids are going to warp what comes to them Mm -hmm. the way they need it to hopefully. Mm -hmm. And you really got to hope that with the internet and just with things being accessible, that, you know, thank God you can be a weird kid in a really tiny town. And it isn't hard to see these That's representations right. as mm-hmm. good people, cool people. When we watch Breakfast Club, we're like, wait, no, Ali Sheedy's the really beautiful one. Oh my gosh. I want to hang out with her. Yeah. <laughs> what are they talking about? Incredible, incredible. And in, in Blood Below the Skin has a little reference to that too, where there's like, where she says, you know, if you're not a tease or you're not a slut, you know, sort of what are you? <laughs> and, um, you know, which I always thought was a really great line. And honestly, I just feel like that's still like that, that still exists. You know, when I was talking to Morgan and um, Kelsey, who are the two girls who have that mm-hmm. in who are having that dialogue in, in um, blood below the skin, I said, is this, does this ring true for you? You know? And they were like, yeah, totally. And it was funny in the, in the first version of the script, I think she said, Oh, I, you know, I won't tell anyone what you just told me. I wouldn't want people to think that you're a skank, which is a word I hate, but I, but I thought that had replaced slut, you know? Uh-huh. And, I said, no, I would have said, you know, when I was your age, I would have said slut. And they were like, we still say slut. And I was like, all right, let's change it to slut because I like that word better. I mean, they're both horrible, you know, like derogatory. But um, so, but it was important that, or I mean, it's sad that 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 still exists, you know, that these young girls who are just trying to live their daily daily life, like they can't make a good decision if it's like, if if they don't want to have sex, you know, then they're a prude or a tease. And if they do, then they're a slut. Like that still exists. And I think it's still sort of, I mean, it exists for adult women, you know, I mean, we still live in this, like this kind of shaming culture that we sort of imagine that women just don't have autonomy over their bodies, you know? So, um, and that's, that was important for me as an adult woman to sort of have that moment in that script that for me still feels like something that we haven't resolved as a yeah. culture. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it's unfortunate that, that those, that it was, that it's, it felt real for those, for those two girls, but you know, it, it on set, it actually really inspired a very interesting conversation mm-hmm. between the three of us, you know, where I got to be that person who's like, you don't, you don't let anybody tell yeah. you, right. you know, you just live your life. And, you know, I mean, I got a little bit of eye roll, but I think that they got it, you know, and they understood the significance of putting a scene like that in a film that was for them, you know? And of course, in what happens in blood, blood of the skin is that like, you know, eventually that relationship in that situation gets resolved in a way that I also think is, you know, was really meaningful where those two girls get to sort of reveal, you know, some secrets about their experience or lack of experience, you know, yeah. that, that feels that felt important to me too, that they both get to sort of say, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just 14. Can I just be 14? Is that okay? You know? And cause that's sort of how I felt. I mean, when I was a teenager, um, I, you know, I just got, um, I was really, I was just not interested in boys at all. You know, I was, uh, I was kind of doing my thing. I was a ballet dancer and I was a swimmer and I was pretty into those things and I was kind of terrified of boys. So it was like a good way to just, you know, retreat into those things. Um, and, 
but I was also, um, and this is something that like an autobiographical moment that, that's going to, that, that exists in the feature, um, script that we I had a student teacher in my, uh, high school who would like write me love notes. He was like 26. Maybe I was like 16 and he mm. would write me love notes when he was like passing back our, you know, papers. And, and I was, um, I mean, I look back on that and I, I'm just furious with that guy that somehow he thought like he, that there were no boundaries for him, you know, that sort of like he thought I was cute and didn't, it didn't occur to him like, oh, she's 16, you know, I and she's in high school. I should just forget about it. And, um, you know, I mean, I remember telling my mom, you know, I mean, I had a good relationship enough with my mom just to say, I don't you know, I don't like him. Right. What should I, what should I do? And she, you know, I forget what our, what our, that actual sort of like conversation was, but it's something that happens in the, in the feature script like that really happens that one of the girls gets sort of seduced by this, um, this older student teacher. And on the one hand, sometimes that attention can be really great, you know, but then, you know, at some point you just want to go, yeah, you just want to be like 14 again. And, and if you're going to date anybody, it's going to be another 14 year old boy or something. It's not going to be like a 26 year old college student, you know, or at least for me, it wasn't, you know? Yeah. It occasionally goes bad. Yeah. Yeah. And what what ended up happening? Um, well, he would call me every day after school. And this is pre cell phone. So Mm -hmm. call the home phone and I would sit in the kitchen and talk to him. Answer. Uh, I was maybe my mom would sometimes, you know, yeah. but she, and I would sit in the kitchen and talk to him. I mean, about nothing ever happened physically between us, yeah. you know, because um, I didn't like him. I mean, he was also not very attractive too, you know. <laughs> but still, like, I just wasn't right. he and 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 I would sit in the kitchen and talk to him at the kitchen table when my mom was cooking dinner. So, like, I always mm. kind of wanted her to know, like, I was being upfront with her. You know, she knew that I was talking who I was talking to, and that I wasn't sneaking and having a. Yeah. explicit conversation with him. And I think at some point I just, I realized that, um, like I just felt sorry for him or something, you know, and that, uh, it was easier for me just to sort of take a phone call from him after school. Mm. And then he sort of wouldn't, didn't talk to me at school cause I didn't want him to talk to me at school. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a weird, it's like weird and kind of complicated and it's funny. I, the, one of my very good friends right now was in that same class with us and it, and it was not, it was like just recently that I told her, I said, you know, that student teacher, you know, that he used to call me on the phone after school every day. And she was like, what are you talking about? You know, why didn't you ever tell me? And I said, I was like really embarrassed or I didn't even know how to, I was like, you know, 16, like I didn't know how to navigate any of that stuff. Oh no, no! You know, no, at all. So, um, and in, in it, and it gets resolved differently in the, in the film, but you know, she's still, you know, she sort of still comes out. Um, you know, he's still like, you know, looks like a total jerk, you know, but I feel like, you know, like the teenage girls have to kind of, you know, on the one hand you want to portray yourself as older, you know, you're 16, you say you're 18, you know, but then at some point you really, you know, when you just want to, you know, be, like a kid and be taken care of. I mean, one of the most lovely things that was happening on set with, with um, blood was with Kelsey who can be a real toughie. I mean, I think that she's a lovely, I love her to death and, and uh, I think that she's coming along and, and has become such a great um, performer. Um, and you know, there were times when I was directing her and literally I would just say, just say it like this, 
you know, like mind your own fucking business. And she would deliver the line like mind your own fucking business or, you know, she would just completely fuck it up just to be resistant. And so there were those moments with her where I would eventually get the performance out of her. Um, But then there was a day when she, so she's wearing this band hat and we kept having to kind of like tuck her hair up into the band hat and she could have tucked her hair up into the band hat by herself. But every time between takes, you know, she would come over to me and say, you know, like, oh, yeah, let's tuck my hair up. You know? <laughs> and Stephen noticed it, too, that like we that she needed like that day, for whatever reason, she needed for me to be like a mother to her and to oh, sort yeah. of mother her a little bit and and to literally like, touch, sort of like touch her and kind of pet her hair. And and, um, you know, so that just so I realized like, right, this like this girl who's 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 totally self-possessed, who's in a band that's getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. In real life, I mean, she is in a band that, that's been written up a bunch in Chicago. Um, yeah, she's you know self possessed is a you know proclaimed feminist and whatnot is still sixteen and needs you know like some yeah. hand holding and some petting and you know someone the adult in the room to say you know I will pro- I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you today. So you know that's also significant that I that I can kind of show that you know what what these you know who these girls are that they're still like ponies you know on some level and that really the adults like there's also this sort of message that like coming of age is a really is an ongoing process you know I mean I feel that all the time you know I just feel like I'm still you know that I'm I'm constantly just kind of climbing out of adolescence well and you're constantly just I mean not even such a major event like what you were talking about just the simplest things like why didn't I just do that one thing (laughs) Why didn't my friends gave me a bike? Like, dude, jump over this ditch. Like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. Like, think about it. Why didn't I want to do it? Yeah. And it's a little bit just like, yeah. don't fucking tell me what to do. It was like, yeah, oh. right, yeah. Eh, I don't know. Did uh, did the girls think your tattoos were cool? Uh, I think eventually they did. I think honestly, oh, the not fun- right away. Well, I think they thought I was like, kind of like, uh, like dangerous or something. You know what I mean? Like, awesome. where like I, <laughs> like right? Like I I didn't realize that till later that they were a little afraid of me or something like that you well, know at because first because there were so many tattoos kids may, must have yeah, tattoos now I know I mean eventually they were sort of like I like your tattoos I mean <laughs> the best day was when I came in because we shot over three days it wasn't a long shoot and we shot over three days and it was maybe on like day three that I came in and one of them of the you know all the 21 of them just said like you look pretty cute today <laughs> and I really was just like yes you know <laughs> um, and that felt I wasn't dressing for them, but I certainly didn't want to like, sure, you know, just miss the boat completely. Look, look you know? whether you're trying or not, it's going to come through your mind. Oof. So I was really glad that I got that, <laughs> you know, that I got that, that vote. And so, yeah, I think right. I feel like eventually they sort of, they realized that I was not this, um, you know, like an ex carny, you know, but mm-hmm. that I was actually like really clowny and yeah. that. And that I'm, a, that I'm nurturing too. You know, I think yeah. that they, you know, between takes, I would be really mothering to them, even if they didn't need it with all of the girls and reminding them to, mm-hmm. you know, to get some water or asking them if they were okay or sort of straightening up their clothes and whatnot. And so I think that they realized that, yeah, that I wasn't, the tattoos are just a front for me just being like a real clowny, softy mom. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Are the tattoos thought out or is it more about a point in your life you just get one? Uh, well, the one that this one is brand new. I just got this like two weeks ago. Oh, crazy. And, but it's the first one that I had gotten in 10 years. You know, there's this big 10 year gap. I mean, I think partially cause I was like, you know, 
taking care of kids and it was just never sort of, even though it's not like it takes days for it to get a tattoo, you know, it takes, you know, several hours in an afternoon or something, but, um, I just hadn't gotten one in a really, in a long time. And, um, but it was going in spurts, right? I feel like at some point in grad school when I was like more kind of actively, you know, riot girl, like, you know, there was a big cluster of them and there was a, a lull and then there was a couple more. Yeah. Then there's been this, like, you know, this sort of 10 year, gap and this one that's on the back of my hand was was sort of supposed to be smaller you know I was like oh maybe it's a little snake and then the the guy started drawing it and at some point I was like I don't know fuck it like it's not like I don't have other other ones you know um and it felt good it felt good to get a new one and my my children were the ones who that was a great you know they're eyes just got like whoa mama a little bit kind of like jeez mom you know yeah you're not cooler you know well it was yeah they were a little like i can't you know you know and but but everybody like there's so many people with tattoos now like i get sometimes i get conscious self-conscious going to like pick them up from school and i and i look around and there's like you know big neck tattoos like face tattoos i'm like i'm actually yeah, yeah you know so i feel like i'm actually the sort of you know the Carol Brady of the bunch <laughs> picking everybody up, you know, so yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. This is great. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, it was fantastic. I love talking to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, as long as someone's got interesting stories, it's not hard <laughs> to do. And how close are you to doing the feature, you think? You just um, got Creative Capital. Yep. I just got Creative Capital. And we, um, so I'm sort of in the midst of, um, you know, raising a little bit more money, but also mm-hmm. putting together like a more kind of proper production team or finding let's say like an executive producer i'll Mm -hmm. still work with steven i love steven and he and i will you know we'll make this film together but um it's a more ambitious film than you know than we've done and so you know i want someone who's made you know like an indie feature before to sort of help because that would also be nice to even though i could imagine casting someone like jennifer eslin again it would actually be nice to you know to cast some more experienced actors maybe do a mix even a celebrity uh, (laughs) or someone with some kind of you know because i feel like working for instance with like tj uh who's the underwear buyer Sonic right. commercial guy right for this new film was like super fun to have someone kind of really recognizable oh, but, kind of pop up in the middle of the movie but he's the perfect know? kind of celebrity because people know him from this commercial and then if you see what he does mm-hmm. on stage it is yeah. brilliant yeah fantastic so it would be really fun to work with some a couple kind of recognizable faces not a bunch but just sort of like mm-hmm. just to even kind of like boost the profile of it you know i understand how things work you know in both film and art yes. world. So, so I think, so we're thinking that yeah. maybe production starts, um, in fall of 2016, cool. you know, cause I feel like that's enough time. And there's sort of two other shorts that I'll do like real short, like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Cause I kind of can't go a year without making something. It's just as I have to do it. It keeps me out of jail most, mostly. <laughs> um, so that, but that feels like a good time frame to sort of like shoot 2016. We're going to do post-production and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. through the spring of 2017. And then, you know, uh, so and blood's just starting now yeah exactly so it's gonna have its world premiere in berlin it seems so crazy to have you know to have like one film at sundance and the another film at berlin it it feels like totally unreal and there's still there films that are related to each other but related to this future feature and um and still very much my own weird little take on a kind of teen narrative or yeah you 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 didn't change what you do already Mm mm-hmm 
No, and it, and that feels really significant that that. Um, but I feel like it's you know programmers like you or programmers like the people at Rotterdam or Berlin who, you know, it's uh, um, you know, who sort of get it or kind of understand how a film like this can can work. Uh, maybe in a program with something that's more conventional or something that's totally. even you know like something that Jennifer Reeves does, you know, which is like much oh, yeah. more sort of like, you know, abstract and material, which by the way, I just have to say that she and I get confused for each other a lot. It just it's happened recently the, also where someone really? said to me, oh, I'm, I cannot, I mean, I'm, I'm dying to see your new 16 millimeter film. That's going to be at Sundance. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's not me. That's the other one. This and is I think, a problem of letters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's incredibly close. But she and I are good. Fr- she and I, we're not, we, she and I are friends. And, I, and yeah. so when I've said to her before, I was like, Does, do people ever ask you about white trash girl? And she's like, oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, well, at least mm-hmm. thank God that's what they're mistaking you for. You know? Yeah, it no, it's so much yeah. worse. No, it's good. But yeah, so the, uh, yeah, so the, the feature is, um, in, you know, in the works and the script, the script is done. But now that I know that I'm going to make it, you know, it, it turns into one of those things where I was like, I'm like, uh, maybe we don't need that. Maybe how do I rewrite that scene? It's supposed to take place in like a football stadium to, <laughs> to be something that we can actually shoot, yeah, you know, sure. that's more manageable to a budget and to what I can handle in terms of people and continuity and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it feels so significant to sort of have this, you know, this project and that feels really great. And it's also like on the heels of these, of these two, well, on a million miles away and then yeah, blood is just starting, but that I know that there will be, I think it's a good time to be a female filmmaker right now. Actually, mm-hmm. I think that there's been a lot of, um, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of sort of, uh, backlash right now. Like let's say with all the kind of Oscar nominations that are, have sort of eliminated, you know, women or, or people of color. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of people really interested in what, and in what in particular female directors mm-hmm. with a real specific kind of voice that seems about, you know, like a female experience or bringing. And so, um, yeah, that feels, uh, it feels like a really good time for me to, to make a feature. I think it, if this had happened five years ago and certainly 10 years ago, I'm not sure that I would be ready. And so it feels really good to have all this stuff happening. And honestly, in terms of even just like my personal life, it feels really good for all this stuff to be happening on the other side of three children. You know, I mean, I was definitely someone who had um, my first child at a time when nobody was, ha- none of my friends were having kids, you know? And so and I got that like, well, you know, say goodbye to your career. And that sure. didn't happen. I mean, I remember I, I got a, um, a grant to do a, to make a film in San Francisco when my son was just, my oldest son was just a little over a year old, you know, and it was just me and him. We moved to San Francisco for the summer and I shot a, you know, I shot a film there. So like my, you know, my parenting has never, you know, gotten in the way of my filmmaking and, yeah. and, uh, hopefully vice versa. I mean, I've been doing a lot of traveling this, this, <laughs> this past year and a half. I think my sons are getting a little tired of that. Yeah. Although I, I bring them back stuff. I bring them back stuff. Like what's the problem? <laughs> so, but that feels really good yeah, it's, also, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of management, you know, but it feels good to be, you know, the sort of the mom, the mom making movies on some level and to be like, well, you can't do it. You can't do it all, all at once, but you know, you can, you can, you can do it all and do it well. Well, the good news is you've made more films than a lot of people that kids. So yeah, <laughs> I don't think you have to, I didn't say that you said that <laughs> I was thinking it mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in a positive way. Yeah. You've been, you've been a steamroller. It's mm-hmm. good. Well, this is super cool talking to you and I appreciate so much, you know, your support. It's really meaningful. Thanks, Jen. Yep.